to run through the, the, the three speakers from left to right, we've got Jennifer Crane from the University of Warwick. Jenny is a social and cultural historian of medicine, interested in activism and voluntary action, social policy construction, health, expertise, experience and childhood in 20th century Britain. She's a public engagement research fellow on a Wellcome Trust Senior Investigator Award investigating the cultural history of the NHS. She's passionate about engaging with policymakers, practitioners, charities and members of the public and co-leads the public engagement for the major Wellcome Trust project, The People's History of the NHS. Her monograph, Child Protection in England, Expertise, Experience and Emotion, is published by Paul Gray Millen uh, this year. So, out or? Yeah, just out. Right, well done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, next up, we've got Julian Simpson. Julian is an independent scholar who's published widely on the history of migration and healthcare, as well as on the policy relevance of history. His study, Migrant Architects of the NHS, South Asian Doctors and the Reinvention of British General Practice from the 1940s to the 1980s, was published by Manchester University Press in February. The research done for the book formed the basis of an exhibition, which is running at the Royal College of General Practitioners over in Euston Square uh, until December. He also co-edited History, Historians and the Immigration Debate, Going Back to Where We Came From, which is a collection of essays and that will be published by Paul Gray later this year as well. And uh, last up, we've got Alex Mould from the London School of uh, Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Alex joined uh, the school in July 2004 to work with Virginia Berridge on an ESRC-funded project on the drug and voluntary sector and user groups from the 1970s to the present. From 2007 to 2012, she held Wellcome Trust History of Medicine University Award to investigate the construction of the patient as consumer from the 1960s to the present. In 2013, she was awarded a Wellcome Trust New Investigator Award for the project, placing the public in the public health, public health in Britain, 1948 to 2010. She also directs the Centre for History in Public Health. So, over to Jenny to begin with. Um, yeah, so my research is, um, I'm really delighted to be here today, really enjoyed all the papers because my research um, is about kind of activism most broadly, so I was finding everything so useful and interesting. Um, for my own work, it's in post-war Britain, um, and I've so far kind of looked at three different case studies of activism. Um, so I looked at child protection, activism around kind of child protection movements from the 60s, um, and I was researching that from 2012, so from just after when the Jimmy Savile um, crisis came to light, um, which really raised kind of important issues for activism as well about how to study something while it's rapidly changing at the same time. Um, I'm currently working on a project about the NHS at Warwick, which is a group project, um, which is a great thing. Um, and activism in defence of the health service, so keep our NHS public, um, and older precedents of that as well. The idea that a lot of these came out of the kind of 1980s um, Greater London Council anti-Thatcherite moment, but how there's broader moves as well. Um, and my next project, um, which I've kind of just started on um, vaguely, is um, about gifted children. Um, so again, actually, a lot of interest in the kind of eugenicist discussions today, because that's a project where kind of instantly you might think, like, it sounds like a kind of happy, positive project, but actually it can be very much about the psychological identification of future national leaders and to further state aims, and that's something that becomes very apparent in Cold War contexts especially. Um, so in terms of kind of activism, I think that what I'm interested in is kind of thinking, and especially this conference, like what is distinct about medical activism versus other types of activism. The case studies that I've looked at are ones where the medical identity is always important, so there's always kind of general practitioners and um, psychologists always involved in child protection, obviously in the NHS, also in gifted childhood. Um, but they're not always the kind of central leaders um, of activist campaigns, or if they are, it's cases in which these are medics, but they're also acting as parents quite often in my work, um, more commonly, and again with all the gender themes that came up today, often as mothers with a distinctive form of kind of mother-medic activism. And they're acting as community members in different types of communities, often as minority groups who feel they've been personally discriminated against, people with personal experience, 
So I'm kind of interested in looking more broadly about kind of overlapping types of expertise um, and specifically and what the book was about was the idea of expertise grounded in experience um, so as well as kind of medical um, knowledge or medical authority which gives you one type of very long-standing authority but the idea that has something changed in the late 20th century where we are especially with the rise of investigatory media and the voluntary sector are we especially interested in kind of making public individual experiences and heralding them as a form of expertise but also kind of promulgating a confessional culture where people feel expected to share their experiences um, but would also be kind of interested here from 19th century people on the extent to which that has so many early precedents as well and wouldn't want to be assuming it's a super modern phenomenon. Um, and I'm also super interested in public engagement, so the NHS project, we do a lot of work with um, all kinds of different kind of community groups, hospitals, museums and activist groups and I think that it would also be interesting to talk about public engagement here and the ways in which that can broaden our thinking about activism because we work with hospital groups and with patients and they say that they're activists just by kind of sharing their memories in dementia groups or by talking to their families about their end of life or organ donation wishes or talking to individual medics. So the idea that an individual conversation can be a kind of radical activist act in somebody's life course and that's something that as historians we think is important as well. I'm also interested in, again, kind of issues raised today, especially by Simon, about who is speaking on behalf of different people and when are we entitled to talk for ourselves as activists? Is that especially the case for doctors? When is it not? So, yeah, excited to hear everyone's thoughts. Thank you. Okay, um, the issue of uh, medical activism is one I've been interested um, in in um, various different uh, ways. Uh, and uh, one of the things I, I find um, interesting is the the fact we tend not to talk about activism from the uh, from the right. So I think it's always important to um, see this term as, as quite a rounded one. But what I'm going to talk about more specifically uh, today, uh, to start with uh, certainly, is the uh, work that I did around uh, South Asian doctors who became uh, general practitioners between the 1940s and the, uh, and the 1980s. Uh, and um, the extent to which they can be seen as activist medics, which is... Um, something that I um, came to feel very quickly once I started doing interviews, oral history interviews, with people in the project. <clears throat> so it was very much based on um, oral history. And my starting point was really the sense that uh, these doctors had played a fundamentally important role in the NHS, but at the time when I started uh, working on this in 2008, there was very little recognition uh, of their role. And we're talking about 10,000 uh, South Asian uh, GPs in the NHS about the late 1970s, and, and obviously that's just the people who are in the system in the late 1970s. A lot of people came, worked for two or three years, and, uh, and went back. And when they were mentioned in uh, histories of the NHS, generally, well, generally they weren't mentioned. And when they were mentioned, it was purely in terms of uh, units of manpower, as uh, uh, was described at the time, still uh, terms often used um, today. So what I've tried to do is to um, highlight two uh, aspects of this uh, history in my work. Uh, firstly, the structural dependency of the NHS on South Asian uh, doctors and South Asian GPs uh, specifically. So in other words, they fulfilled particular roles. They did jobs that UK-trained doctors did not want to do. Uh, they were highly concentrated in particular geographical areas, specialties uh, and uh, roles, who are often in junior uh, positions. And also, fundamentally, they were doing the core work of the NHS for me, which is about providing care to people who otherwise wouldn't have been able to uh, access it. So if you look at uh, you know, the uh, uh, areas of urban deprivation, cultural communities, mental health, care for the elderly, that's where you'll find higher concentrations of, uh, of migrant doctors. Uh, and the other aspect of this is not just, uh, so not just about highlighting structural dependency, but also highlighting the agency of these doctors. So they weren't just unity, uh, units of, uh, of manpower. They were also shaping the, um, the system. Uh, and there's three broad ways in which they, they did this. Uh, there's the collective impact uh, that they had uh, on the uh, mainstream uh, through their uh, organisations that they set up. There were parallel networks that they established in terms of social support uh, and medical education. And then there's also individual agency, and that's sometimes at national level, sometimes even at an international level, but also at the level of practices and uh, communities, uh, and that could be something that was quite important uh, over a GP's career of, um, say, 30 years, uh, and with an average patient list of 3,000 people, you end up shaping the lives of quite a lot of, um, of individuals. So the idea was 
really to say these people are not simply placed in the system and serving to address shortages. Uh, I could say a lot about doctor shortages as a, as a concept, uh, but to see them as, uh, as people who are shaping uh, the system and uh, in so doing, not only understanding medicine differently, but also understanding the role of migration differently by looking at its impact over time on the mainstream, which is something we tend not to, not to do. So very briefly, in terms of collective uh, organisations and their impact uh, on the mainstream, uh, what was interesting was there was a range of organisations that were active uh, during uh, this period, and uh, they clearly uh, did have an impact. It's obviously not straightforward to quantify that, but I'm quite certain that it was, um, it was there. There's a range of organisations, one of the most, the most influential, certainly from the 1970s, was the Overseas Doctors Association, which was established in uh, 1975. Uh, which is significant because it was a time at which doctors in significant numbers had started to settle bill careers, start to feel hard done by, uh, and uh, got to the point where they wanted to do uh, something about it. And it was, it was largely symbolic initially. It was a protest against the fact that uh, they weren't allowed to go and work uh, in other EC uh, countries. But then uh, around that, it sort of crystallised a certain amount of resentment about discrimination uh, within the, uh, the NHS and the treatment of, um, of doctors. Uh, and uh, this organisation uh, had broad uh, international membership, although it was dominated by South Asian men. It did set up a women's forum further, further down the line. Uh, but um, it was striking when I looked at the um, archival material at the, uh, the BMA uh, that uh, you clearly had two periods, you have the period where these doctors are being spoken about, and then you have the period where essentially the ODA bashes down the door, turns up in the room, starts making demands, and that's reflected quite clearly in the archive. They do really uh, shake, uh, shake things up. So in a way, it was interesting to do the oral history interviews, but also alongside the archive material. And I, by combining the two, I got something I wouldn't have got uh, just by looking at one or the other, because obviously if I'd just, just done oral history interviews with people saying, well, we we're very influential, uh, I'd have had to take that with a, a pinch of salt. But what was quite striking was people saying, describing this sort of before and after moment and then seeing that reflected in the, in the archive. Uh, and uh, very quickly, I got meetings with uh, the uh, highest levels of government they were talking to, uh, to Barbara Castle. Uh, they got uh, representation uh, on their GMSC at the, um, at the British Medical Association. They got organised, they stood candidates for the General Medical Council, uh, got, uh, got elected. And again, it's important to say, you know, this doesn't mean that they were necessarily heroic. I mean, personally, I think it's problematic that people were organising largely around uh, an ethnic basis and standing cabinets and people were voting for them uh, as a bloc and getting them on the General Medical Council. But certainly, they were uh, influential. Uh, they were working with government, for instance, on initiatives like the Stop uh, Ricketts uh, campaign. They were advocating on behalf of um, BME, BME patients. So they're clearly influential, certainly limits to this inf influence, and by the 1980s, the organisation was starting to fragment, to splinter, uh, and uh, that sets the tone for the uh, current situation, which is much more fragmented organisations based around um, nationalities. But they certainly were influential, I think it's important to, um, to recognise that. Uh, the other important aspect of this uh, agency for me was the fact that these organisations and others were not necessarily, the ODA and other organisations, were not necessarily simply engaging with the mainstream, they were actually at times setting themselves up as parallel uh, institutions. So, I mean, the ODA as well as being a, a lobbying uh, organisation, although that's a word that the um, uh, leaders absolutely abhorred and got very annoyed uh, about when I, when I used it with them, but they were essentially lobbying government on behalf of, uh, of overseas doctors, principally uh, South Asian doctors. Uh, they were also organising meetings, having huge numbers of people turning up to take part in, uh, in medical training. Uh, to share experiences about the running of, uh, of practices and also just functioned as a social support network and that was something that was very important at the time and it allowed people to build professional networks so although people were excluded uh, from a lot of uh, networks that uh, British trained doctors were able to access. What started to happen slowly was they created their own networks. So in other words, you'd start, you'd have basically discrimination against South Asian doctors in certain parts of the country, but then when people went into deprived areas, set up practices, often they would recruit people that they knew from within the South Asian uh, community. So again, that's not to say that's a great thing. It's an ideal way of uh, running a healthcare system. Certainly, it was uh, influential, uh, and it was, for me, an example of activism, entrepreneurialism, uh, 
you could uh, you could also say. Uh, and then there was, as well as the Overseas Doctors Association, had these hugely influential alumni groups, which were uh, huge gatherings of graduates of specific Indian universities, which became very, very important as the numbers grew. So you started having a critical mass of people who graduated from uh, Calcutta or other universities who'd get together. And that would function very much along similar lines, although that tended to be more social and networking, families involved, uh, etc. Uh, and these groups played a huge role in terms of uh, social support, which is quite an important dimension of the, um, the history of the NHS at the, at the time, because it was, a, it was a big issue for people, obviously, these are the days of you know, pre-internet and uh, social media, people could feel quite uh, quite isolated. And uh, I came across quite a poignant uh, advertisement. One of the newspapers with it just uh, said it was two lines of an Indian uh, doctor freshly arrived in the UK seeks social circle or something or something along those lines. So clearly they were playing an important part uh, in the NHS in, uh, in that respect. And the final dimension I'll uh, I'll discuss briefly is the the activism of individuals. And um, sometimes that was in the mainstream, and uh, I think it's important to emphasise this because there was this assumption, uh, still is to a certain extent, that uh, South Asian doctors came in, were on the margins, uh, and were not really able to shape the, uh, the mainstream. Quite a few people did. Now, clearly, yeah, I interviewed uh, people who were willing to be interviewed, therefore those who had a positive story to tell were more likely to, uh, to come forward. I think that's reasonable to, uh, to assume. But still, I did feel that this was, uh, this was quite quite a striking recurring theme in the interviews that people felt that they were able to shape uh, their, uh, their destiny and shape the, uh, the medical system. And in some cases, it was also possible to verify that through looking at archival materials. So you have someone like Deepak Ray, who got involved in the TUC and was one of the most prominent left-wing uh, doctors in the country in the 60s, 70s and, uh, and 80s, uh, and uh, spoke regularly at the, uh, at the TUC and was very influential. Uh, trade union has become a, became a commissioner of the uh, Commission for Racial Equality, for instance. Uh, the BMA, interestingly, uh, initially the ODA got representation on the GMSC, and then by the early 80s, very very quickly, because a part of the influence of the ODA as well was it actually shaped the attitude of the mainstream. So the response of the British Medical Association was to move forward a few doctors who'd been already within the mainstream system and put them on the GMSC. So then the argument was, well, we don't really need any special representation from you because we've already got some of these Asian doctors who've managed to come through the standard system. So there are other people also going through these, um, these networks. Someone like Krishna Kalipura, who's an Indian GP in uh, Bolton, uh, for instance, set up the uh, GP cooperatives. And that was purely his own initiative, someone who wanted to create a space for himself in British medicine and uh, decided he wasn't satisfied with out-of-hours provision by uh, the private company that he was uh, using locally and set up a system of, uh, of co-ops whereby local GPs grouped together to provide out-of-hours service. So this is something that completely uh, changed the work of uh, thousands of uh, GPs over a period of a few years and became the mainstream way of uh, providing out-of-hours care. So again, it's about writing these doctors back into the uh, core of the history of the, uh, of the NHS. What happened also is people would, uh, would stand for, uh, for election. And also, again, I think it's important to emphasize uh, the activism from the right. So one of the, uh, one of the main actors in the establishment of the Conservative Medical Society was Rat Chandran, who's a Sri Lankan uh, GP, uh, quite entrepreneurial, uh, very much Thatcherite, uh, latterly joined, uh, joined UKIP. So clearly, uh, these uh, doctors were coming in with their own perspectives, and they were able to shape uh, the system that they, um, that they found. And I'll end by talking briefly about the impact as well that people had at a local level. So it wasn't just people who rose to national prominence. And I think it's important as well to not just think that they are people who, who are active at the G level of the GMC, the BMA, and that policy happens in London and then it's sort of filtered back, uh, back down. And it's certainly at the time, uh, probably less, certainly less true now of general practice, at the time general practitioners had a huge amount of independence and latitude in terms of what they did and how they chose to, uh, to conceive their role between the 1940s and the, uh, and the 1980s. Uh, so essentially, by definition, once you were the, the general practitioner working in an area, you had quite a lot of power. People used that to contest uh, the power of the, uh, the local authorities, and people talked to me about contesting decisions on housing, and very clearly bringing in their own cultural background and talking about their affinities with older people and becoming advocates for older people who are being taken out of their homes, sent to inappropriate housing and, and dying. And uh, basically, uh, interviewed a doctor described to me being the black sheep of the local council and clearly sort of 
situating himself in opposition to the authorities and you know, successfully managing to advocate on behalf of his, um, his patients. And that, that happened in other instances uh, as well. Uh, and people very regularly actually stood for election, got elected as local councillors, uh, sometimes stood for, um, for MPs, and clearly had quite a, quite a fundamental impact, not just on general practice, but on local communities. And it was particularly true when for particular certain doctors in terms of their relationship with the local ethnic minority population, which again is not unproblematic because clearly uh, people at the time were largely abandoned by the NHS system. They were very reliant on doctors being able to, essentially doctors were working as interpreters uh, at, the, uh, at the time, uh, and it gave them a huge amount of, uh, of power. Uh, so obviously I heard the doctors side, I would like to interview patients, I didn't really have to uh, get round to, uh, to, to doing that, and that would have been uh, quite difficult as well to go back and interview people who happened to be patients of that particular doctor at that point in, in time. But again, it's about, it's about maintaining this perspective on, uh, on activism and not necessarily seeing it uh, as completely uh, unproblematic. And, uh, uh, so I think we should just move on to that. Right. Sorry, I was going to just going to conclude, but more, that's fine. More, more things to say, but I just want to uh, give okay. Alex a, a, a chance to speak as well before we have a conversation. Sorry. To okay, um, thanks very much. I thought I'd just say a little bit about my own work and then how that's sort of thrown up a lot of questions for me that relate to the theme of medical activism and then some of the themes that, that have come up for me today. Um, so my approach to activism has tended to look at it not from the point of view of the professional but rather from the other side of the, of the encounter, whether that's the patient or the user or the consumer or the public. So um, as was said in the, in the introduction to, to my work, one of the, the first projects that kind of touched on this topic that I looked at was about um, illegal drug user groups. And obviously that's a hugely contested area of medical activism. Um, so some things that illegal drug user groups might want are things like legalisation of drugs, which is obviously going to be a contested uh, political issue. Then I've also looked at the um, development of patient-consumer groups, and that's groups that tried to represent all patients irrespective of the condition that they suffered from, but kind of oriented around this notion of the patient as consumer, which again is an incredibly controversial um, term with lots of different contested understandings about what consumerism might mean and the, the settings it might uh, operate in and what kinds of activism we could uh, sort of put under that, that heading. And then the current project is thinking about the role of the public in public health. Um, lots of discussion about what the public means, what public health means. Um, but I think, and this came up in some of the discussion today too, it's about how do, in what capacity do the public have to speak back to public health? Are, what spaces are there for activism within public health on the behalf of the, this amorphous um, public? So I think kind of running through those different projects, and it's coming up in some of the discussions we've had today, are, are some, some common themes. Um, one is about the paternalism of the medical profession. It's, it's concerned to try and speak for patients and, and do things to people with often quite a paternalistic approach, which is, has for, for good and for ill. And that relates, I think, to the, the, the issue around there are many occasions in which patients or users or the public are spoken to uh, or spoken for rather than able to speak for themselves. And that's problematic because I think sometimes professional needs are prioritised over those of patients and there are all sorts of settings in which that happens. And what I think this might suggest is that the interests of patients and professionals aren't always aligned. Now, of course, neither can exist without the other, and it's clearly a symbiotic relationship. But, and there are all sorts of ways in which health professionals and, and the public or patients might work together, um, especially in areas of activism. But I think that then leads on to a sort of broader set of questions, um, which revolve around things like, well, what are those areas in which patients and doctors come together in areas of medical activism? What facilitates that? Are there particular moments in time or context uh, where this is more or less likely? That then leads me to thinking about, well, what are the drivers of activism? Of course, there might be a specific issue, but, um, and I want to say a little bit more about this in, in a minute because it really came through very strongly today, obviously activism is related to wider forms of um, politics, wider forms of political activism. Um, so Jenny's done some work around changes to health service provision cuts, um, but also kind of wider politics around so new social movements, so challenges to paternalism from feminists, for example, um, challenges to 
um, white hegemony from, from ethnic minority groups. There are all sorts of wider political issues at work. That then leads on to the question about what do we mean by activism? What forms does it take? Um, it might be direct action, but it might be forms of writing. And what does that mean then to call someone an activist? And those issues, I think, came up very strongly today. I mean, we heard a lot about the different types of activists. Um, so we heard about Victorian social reformers and public health doctors, we, to late 20th century epidemiologists, to shell-shocked patients, um, and how these different types of activists were linked to different types of activism. And going back to the sort of political question, I think what came through very strongly for me today is that medical activism can rarely be separated from other forms of activism, or at least a wider set of social, political, economic issues. Um, so then what problems do, around which, what, around which kind of problems does activism grow? Um, and which areas does it not? I think this is an important question too we need to think about. Where, where, where is activism not? Um, and that leads me to think about, well, where are the places where activism occurs? So we heard in Ian's paper about um, activism in the street, about kind of um, public disturbances and, and um, people kind of taking it upon themselves to, to very publicly demonstrate. But we also heard about activism in the pages of medical journals, of newspapers, novels, and so on. Also inside institutions, places where we might not expect to find activism, actually. But how might the places where activism takes place affect the forms of activism um, and its impact? And finally, and, and this is just a, a, an issue I think that it's interesting when you've got an interdisciplinary um, group like this, is to think about what kinds of sources we're using to access these narratives of, of um, activism. So we've heard about various kinds of texts, um, but other sources too, so in, including patient uh, records, which we know are incredibly problematic, but obviously very useful, but also oral histories too. And um, one thing that hasn't really come up, but was there with, with the PowerPoints, is also thinking about images. So those are just some of the things that, that struck me throughout today, but I thought it was enormously stimulating. Super, thank you very much, all three of you. Uh, I think they're three projects that speak well to each other, and not least in their differences as well. Uh, biggest activism is the, is the theme that ties these three projects together and a lot of the other things that have been said today. I wonder whether I might ask each of you where you found yourself bumping up against the limits of that term, where, it's, where you've either had to distort it or where you've felt like it's... Uh, it's not. It, it's prevented you moving into somewhere where the material would uh, would lead. Oh, Jenny, you want to start? yeah, yeah. I was thinking about this today because I think when I first started thinking about activism, I would think about kind of voluntary organisations like activist groups who would very willingly like take on. Well, I guess not always happy to take on the term lobbying, but a lot of the groups I looked at were happy to be called activists. I don't know how the kind of medical women's federation would have felt about being called activist. Um, I'm not sure. Um, but kind of groups who like you call activist groups. But then since when you move on and as was in a lot of the papers today, activism in institutions and literature. Also thinking about kind of activism is research and surveys. So yeah, I've been very confused about like, is it useful? I would like to hear from the people who gave the papers actually if they find it useful as a term and does it bring them into like useful range of literature, which is what I find it useful for, or is it actually like you'd instead think of like social survey stuff as in the sphere of politics? instead or research so I don't know I find it useful just to bring me into that literature yeah. but maybe agency I sometimes also problematic yes. sometimes find that a bit more useful as a framework yeah I suppose one of the things that, that your use of activism makes clear is that this is a, a collective endeavor which seems very different to something that you were suggesting that this might the activism might be connected to things like uh, Entrepreneurialism and uh, what's the other the other definition um, a, a form of self-interest, I suppose. And I think this is connected to the right-left split that you that you identified. And I do you find activism as a useful uh, umbrella in your work, or is that a, a, a misnomer? Because activism is a way of thinking about collective and group identity or uh, group action. I suppose I use it in the very broad sense of people who are trying to change the environment that they, uh, that they find. And I, and I think, I mean, it's, 
I think what Alex said about you know medics speaking for patients. I think you, you said. I think we. That it's quite an interesting point. I think we can apply it to ourselves as well. And I think it's about examining our own prejudices. And you know, do we decide? Because having interviewed quite a lot of people on the on the right for an, uh, another project, certainly they were coming across to me as as seeing themselves as idealists and activists. But yes, so I've in a way I've started using the word in a different. Um, way because I started out thinking, oh, that you know, sort of Deepak Rachel genius cracks loads of jokes, anti-racist actor. You know, this is very sympathetic. People, you know, we're going to get together as doctors. We're going to combat the medical establishment, take on racism. Then you start thinking, right, okay, but you know, what about women in the ODA? You start seeing these photos of the uh, of the gatherings, and yeah, it's very much you know men conferences as well. You know, it's just um, so I, I just started thinking, well, actually, we maybe need to be critical of some of these people we have sympathy towards, and we also need to engage with what people themselves clearly see as their activism, although we might not necessarily see it like that. So I interviewed Rash Chandran, for instance, uh, and you know he was he talked to me with the uh, same degree of enthusiasm about the Conservative Medical Society as Deepak Ray uh, talked to me about his activism as a trade unionist. And I thought, well, actually, we need to not silence people, and we need to not drive this with our own political uh, take on things. And, uh, the one thing also that I, that, that I realised was that, you know, we need to think about activism within the establishment. It's not, it's not a monolith. So who's, who's driving that? Yes. What are the agendas? One of the things I didn't really manage to, to get into was the fact that clearly there were activists within the medical establishment who were unhappy at the number of South Asian doctors coming in and who were quite instrumental uh, in uh, getting the uh, regulations changed in the 1970s. And that was a... I mean, there's one individual, actually, who seems to me to have been very influential in doing that. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I mean, I think that the same pressure point pertains to your work and the idea of the, the patient as a consumer, which is both a, 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 an isolated person thinking mm. about what they want, what's best for them, the, the uh, idealism around choice in healthcare, and uh, a quest for a, a collective identity or a, a momentum that comes with uh, group action. Is that, is that a vexed question in your research? Yeah, well? very much so. I mean, it's the kind of split, really, between whether you're talking about the patient or patients, are mm. you talking about the consumer or consumers, because one individual doesn't necessarily want the same thing, but also the idea that choice is perhaps the most problematic example of that. If you give one individual more choice, are you then impoverishing other people who either can't make those choices or you, in order to super-serve that person, you're having less resources? So yeah, it's a hugely problematic um, issue for patient-consumer groups um, and the extent to which we're talking about activism, and that's a problematic label, but the extent to which they're willing to engage or not, the label consumer, is incredibly problematic. And just thinking about the general public and patients today, survey after survey shows people don't like to think of themselves as consumers in the context of certainly of the NHS. So yeah, there is a danger that by using any of these labels, we we find the thing that we're looking for. Um, yes. But on the other hand, using those labels can be helpful if it alerts us to certain kinds of things. It's about yes. what, what are we defining as our object of inquiry. And I think it We've got to be careful to not miss stuff and not think about the quiet forms of activism or consumerism or whatever else. It might be, you know, one person complaining about something rather than this kind of more, the more obvious stuff. So another way of thinking about that problem, I think, is about what sorts of sources one looks at, which is might be defined in terms of disciplinary training mm -hmm. processes, methods. Uh, but we might also think about it as... as what are we not qualified to, to look at? Or what do we find, what sorts of sources do we find inaccessible? Are there, has that been a concern or a, something that you've had to broach in your research? Maybe we can go the other way and start with that. Yeah, because I mean, you don't want to think about what the patients or the public or users say. It can be very, it's very difficult to recover that. We mentioned patient records earlier. That's the doctor's view of what was happening. Yes trying to recover the patient's perspective from any time except for now, and even then there are all sorts of ethical issues about how you collect that material, it's really yeah. difficult. Um, that's if we, there are ways in which you can do it. Um, so in the wide project that I've been part of, we've, we've looked at the ways in which public have tried to speak back to public health, and there are lots of different ways in which they, they've done that. You might look at, talk yeah. about sort of um, 
in Paves' work, he's looked at, well, he mentioned it today, lay epidemiology, the notion of kind of the public having their own interpretation of what, what causes heart disease and the resistance to, to other kinds of narratives. So you can find it, but it, it can be difficult. Has that, has that been, I imagine that's a troubling thing when it comes to illegal drug use? Yeah, certainly until recently, because there is now a, a much more visible strand of activism, but yeah, trying to find it historically is, is harder. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where all history has a very important role to play, and it's about thinking about how we use all histories. I've spent quite a lot of time trying to work that out, and how do we use all history as a way of understanding forms of activism when, when fundamentally you're speaking to the people involved in this activism, mm -hmm. they're going to talk about it in a certain way, especially when you talk to people uh, later in life, they're most likely uh, going to present it in a, in a positive uh, fashion. But I, I think, actually, if we try to avoid the, for me, are two traps of either just you know, taking what people say literally or just taking it purely as narrative and we try and engage with it critically and we try and relate it to uh, archival material, often people will point you in the direction of... Uh, of material, if you if you if you just went looking for it, it would probably take ages to locate. Yeah. But if you interview someone, they say, "Well, you know, I, I remember we went for this uh, meeting uh, at the Department of Health. This was happening around about 75, 76. You know, They can narrow it down for you, and they can provide you with a lot of archival material as well. So there's a huge amount of uh, archival work I wouldn't have been able to do without the old history uh, interviews. So I, I think that uh, that certainly is one way of uh, of trying to address that, and also the certainly uh, images, photography. Uh, can give you a very powerful sense of what was happening at a particular point in time. So it's certainly not uh, it's not easy, and it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, but uh, my experience is that it is it is feasible, and the advantage that you have when you're working on this sort of uh, issue is that people tend to feel passionate about it. Uh, so it's fairly straightforward to uh, to recruit people when they, by definition. If you're very active in an area, you want to change something, you probably retain that passion. You want to you want to speak to people about it. I wonder whether you could say a little bit more about the use of oral history in relation to when we look at a, a, a patient record. We've got a record of what that person, uh, what the what the, the doctor was thinking, observing at the time. Mm. A big feature of oral history is that it's often undertaken at a. a to remove across time, mm. and that can be more or less. And has that been, is that generative or is that a problem, or is it something that you've had to just reach an accommodation where you go, well, it's not about accuracy, it's about uh, emotional investment, say. Mm. Could you speak a little bit? Yeah, I mean, in some respects, actually, the subjectivity is very useful. Because one of the things yeah. that really struck me when I started doing interviews was people didn't, they didn't describe spending a lot of time thinking about coming to the uh, to the UK. You, know, you basically, you had the conversation with the generally the father saying you were going to study medicine. So that's usually what I got as an answer <laughs> when I said, "How did you get to, to become a doctor?" And then you go to medical school. And then the next thing you know, they're talking about doing uh, jobs in the UK, etc. And I just always had to say, "Well." You know, hang on, if we go back a bit, you know, what made you migrate? And so invariably, people would not talk about the decision to migrate as a, as a huge deal. Uh, so that's purely subjective, but because they were all talking about it in that particular way, for me, I was able to use that as a way of uh, understanding uh, the fact that geographically there's a huge space, but actually intellectually, culturally, they were moving within within the same space. So in some respects, the subjectivity is very useful, and you can understand history in that way. In some respects, it's essentially about uh, triangulation, saying, so, okay, you know, I've interviewed three or four leaders of the ODA, they're all saying this, let's go and see what I find in the archives, and they're saying that we were doing X, Y, Z. At the BMA, you get a clear sense of the BMA leadership rattled and going, okay, right, you know, these guys are organizing, they're making demands, what do we do? And you go you know, look at the Department of Health records, and you getting notes for the minister for meeting uh, with the ODA, etc. So clearly that says to you that they're not being completely ignored, they're being taken seriously, etc. So we put all of that together and you get a sense of what sort of impact people are, are, are having on the system. So it's about, for me, it's about moving between those uh, those two approaches. And also, I mean, 
Personally, I find it, in a way, it's per- it would be perverse to not have used oral history in the sense that it's a resource. It's yeah. not an unproblematic resource, but I don't know of any unproblematic no. sources. So it's like anything else. You use it critically. You accept the limitations. If you think the limitations are too great, you don't, uh, you don't use it. Uh, but if it's, uh, if it's useful, you, uh, you use it. For me, it actually is as simple as just engaging with it critically. Mm, I guess so we've done fewer histories on my NHS projects but I guess the only thing that I would add is um, that I just completely agree about the significance of trying to work with archivists and to see you know what materials they have kind of like out back or also if you're doing more contemporary history thing it's easy to help to generate new archives so I've kind of helped a few activist groups to deposit their archives um, with various depositories, so it kind of reshapes like the landscape of knowledge that we have available to look at. Um, and I know that Laura King is doing really exciting work in Leeds as well with kind of everyday and family archives and working with family and community groups to see what everyone has in the attic and just to deposit that kind of material. I think that's quite radical. It can fundamentally reshape what we have available to look so at. So the research process is generating the archive as opposed to finding one and then. Yeah, so there's a tricky one because it's not an activity that's necessarily, I guess, rewarded in a kind of metric-driven um, academy, which is significant. You have to think about the working conditions um, of your research because it does affect what we're producing. Yeah. So it's significant. But I think it's important. Yeah. And I think the, the issue of archiving, where they come from, how they're stored, uh, how they're curated, mm. archiving and curation seem like the most trendy terms at the moment. I wonder, I'd like to hear your, your opinions on to what extent a, a specific sense of historical change has informed the way that you've framed and approached your research. Mm. Because oh, the naive view of the archive is that's where history happens, that's where we find, find this stuff. But I, I wonder whether you have a more uh, active sense of the historical as an underpinning uh, source of your research. Well, I was, th- I, I was thinking in, in general terms, I, mean, I, I guess I was wondering, is it primarily social change, proce- procedural change, political change, uh, the, the development of knowledge, which is another way that medical history is often is often framed, that a particular invention or discovery suddenly makes a question urgent or, or possible. And I wondered whether there was any, or, or what sense of history yeah. was was there was operating. Yeah, yeah, we love a we love a medical device. I love a medical device. <laughs> Story, but I think with these projects, with the next project, the gifted child one, what I really want to do is try and instead of I normally kind of start with the policy and then work back and try and look at resistance to the policy, mm-hmm. want to kind of take the feminist post-colonialist route and inspiration from all that literature and try and work the other way around and first look at what families say about this category and how they negotiate it, maybe even before looking at the policy, see if that kind of recalibrates how I look at the whole thing because yeah. the everyday history and everyday change is as important and often it just isn't a reaction like if you look at voting statistics today or if you look at receptions around the early NHS there is a really high level of kind of people in the population who just are never thinking about political change and they're just not interested which is completely um, their choice, their decision mm-hmm. but it just means that if we start with policy we're missing out Yes, and it, I, guess, I guess the risk is making it seem like the public are not informed about something which yeah. is structuring their understanding rather than that that, yeah. that just isn't a, the version of the world that they're seeing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Maybe they respond to local concerns, or maybe you should say the policy isn't responding to the public, and so that's why they're not interested. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I specifically did not start with the archive <laughs> because I didn't think that was going to be particularly helpful way of addressing the questions that I that I had. And my starting point was really the sense that, uh, I mean, I, I come to this from uh, an interest in the history of immigration. So my sense was, well, we don't really write much history of immigration in this country. And we certainly don't write the history of migrants uh, as people who've shaped the UK. And I felt that's a political problem at the time. It's even more of a political problem. Now I think it shapes the political environment. And I think that's, that's why I was emphasising that we need to be careful about 
who we are and how we uh, how we write. So really, my idea was how do I not you know how do I obviously not just uh, write something saying you know people are agents and they did all uh, all of this stuff etc. But how do I explore uh, that question? For me, it was pretty clear that the only way of seriously getting at that was going to be. Uh, through all history, and then just seeing what it uh, what it threw up. Mm. So I didn't know what I was going to find. I might have found a group of people who all said yes. You know, I was uh, I was working in India. I saw this ad. I went and worked as a GP. I you know, I, I was told what to do, uh, and yeah, I, I drew a salary. I live quite comfortably, and now I'm retired. I didn't I didn't get that. I, I, but I, I didn't know what I was going to uh, what I was going to get. But I knew that the only way I was going to get interesting answers was through speaking to people. And I, and I think this is where we have. Um, you know, we have a problem in the way that we conduct research because it's about how we formulate the questions. And again, I've alluded to the right-wing bias, but also it's you know there are things that we that we favour. So you know we'll favour you know looking at um, you know not very sophisticated psychiatrists you know treating patients badly, etc. So we've had quite a lot uh, on that, which is you know, all very interesting. But I think it you know it becomes there's a danger that it, it becomes limiting and it stops us from exploring other issues, and particularly if we limit ourselves to the archive or to the official archive, certainly, because the people have archives, they're just not really accessible. So the ODA archive I was able to access when it's in someone's spare room. That was the last time that I, um, I spoke to them. But that's, again, what you can get if you go out and engage with people. So I think if you really want to write histories of, uh, of actors, activism and how various groups have uh, shaped the UK, you know, we need to go beyond uh, a little confines of, uh, of official archives, which tend to be very, very limiting and will, will limit the, the, the questions that you can ask and they're certainly going to give you very limited, a very limited range of answers to Yeah, I would, I would agree with that and I think the whole notion of what is an archive has changed and changing quite rapidly and, and the obvious kind of area in which that's changing is in relation to, to um, stuff that's born digital, so electronic sources and the internet. I mean this is a Historians are beginning to think about how to address that, and a uh, former colleague of mine, now a colleague of Jenny's, Gareth Millwood, has done some work on, on using the internet as a source, but it's incredibly problematic in the way in which that's archived. Um, but if you're going to write a history that's anything from the 1990s onwards, you're going to have to deal with, with how with those electronic sources. It makes me think, are we, is there going to be a period in which this is going to be known as a new dark ages? Because there's a, a wasteland yeah, there of, of information. Yeah, the stuff in the 90s is actually really hard to find yeah. because it's not really historical enough often to have been archived, but it's not really new enough to be on the internet in a kind of organised way. So yes, the It was ubiquitous enough that important information was on there. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, another thing that I wanted to ask about, which again has come up throughout the course of the day, was about coercion. So the the stories you've been saying that you've been telling us so far are about give versions of empowering patients, empowering doctors to represent their themselves, their experience, their interests more effectively. But I wonder if we could look at it from the other end of the telescope and think in what ways these people have been coerced into doing this as opposed to volunteered. Is coercion a, a, a uh, an important concept in this, uh, in your research? Yeah, it came up with the drug user group stuff because I, there's, there's sort of two, broadly speaking, there are two kinds of drug user groups. So there's the kind of what we might think of as a more activist group, kind of organic drug users coming together to band to, 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 to press for change. And then there's a different kind of activism that's embedded within the NHS and embedded particularly within, within mental health, but in other areas too, where there's a responsibility, every NHS institution has a responsibility to have, to have some kind of patient, user, client, citizen, consumer involvement. And elements of that can be, if not coerced, there's at least a kind of power dynamic and yeah. about how those groups get constructed and whether their voices are really listened to or whether it's kind of box tick checking kind of stuff. So coercion is an element of that, but it's also about how you take how seriously those voices are taken. Yeah, That's yeah I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd find power dynamic a more useful term in the context of my research as well. I certainly felt that was everywhere. Yeah. Coercion, it's, well, it's a bit like activist, depending on how you define it, I, I, I suppose. I mean, I worked on general practice, so you know, in terms of 
real coercion that, that might be going a bit too far. But certainly you did get a sense, certainly looking at that period, going back to the 1940s, of very paternalistic approaches to general practice that sometimes people would describe themselves and they just, they just thought, well, it worked. And uh, that's, uh, so, you know, you want to stop someone from smoking, you grab their packet of cigarettes, you smash it up and you throw it in the bin, you say, that's it, I, the doctor, I'm going to tell you. And you say, no, well, it worked, you know, so what you, who are you to tell me that this is not how you should do? So again, this is where, you know, the, the, the term activist also becomes, uh, becomes problematic. So certainly there was an element of that. that I mean, again, I didn't... And I'm not sure it would have been particularly practical. I didn't interview patients, but certainly I think if I'd been able to get the patient perspective on what doctors were describing, that would have been quite interesting yeah. as well. And I, I do feel that because essentially ethnic minority patients up to the 1980s were largely disenfranchised, they became very dependent on their doctors. Now, some of the doctors that I spoke to described that relationship to me in very positive terms and talked about all the things they did, etc. And I'm sure that was true for many of them. I think it also was pretty clear to me that it placed some patients at least in quite a vulnerable position with their doctor and certainly some of the other literature I've looked at. This is where it was useful to cross-reference your history because I'm obviously not going to well, some of them did actually say negative things about patients, but it's going to be less straightforward to get them to say that. But there was a sociological study done in the 1970s on doctors in the Midlands, and some of them were quite... Some, paradoxically, maybe, Asian doctors were quite hostile towards working-class um, Asian patients, although they'd be fine with white patients. But then, because you had the ethnicity dimension, it seemed to neutralise the class dimension. But certainly some of the ways in which people spoke of their South Asian patients made me think that uh, there's probably some uh, things going on in the patient-doctor relationship that were not ideal. It's a trick on because I think definitely, and listening to papers today again, I was thinking about how um, kind of being part of any institution or any organisation or any structure, like everybody in society does, um, requires kind of level of modulating your behaviour and sometimes that's really explicit because your women's group will send you a letter saying that you're like betraying the group for not like being high enough status, that I thought was fascinating, but other times it's more kind of like subversive changing how you behave because you're in an institution, and I don't know if it's useful or not to think about that as coercion, or if kind of the people studying these things on 19th century um, asylums, I'm sure come up against this a lot, I don't know if you look at it in terms of like agency or coercion or... So it, it strikes me as interesting that all three of you are slightly unhappy with the, yeah. with the term, but are much happier with activism. And I wonder whether that's because <laughs> activism is a very empowering notion that even if you're not affecting change, you are able to act. Whereas when we think of being coerced, we think of something that can't be resisted. Whereas I think they are two sides of the same coin. That one can be an activist and be coerced. Uh, and I think one is a, is a, a more healing term in our vision of how we see ourselves and our actions. That's, there's also the problem of the extent to which you're coerced by social forces, and I think that's what yeah. makes me uncomfortable about it as well, uh, because you do find that people at times were in positions where they, they had no real alternative, yeah. but you know, actually they, they did, but, you know, but they didn't. And, uh, but, so it, I think it is quite difficult in that respect. So, yeah, yeah, clearly, if you have someone who's on hunger strike, who's tied up and force-fed, well, that is, that is coercion. Yeah. Uh, if you have people who are placed in positions where realistically they don't have much of an alternative, although in theory uh, they do, uh, is that coercion? It becomes a lot more difficult. And certainly I thought, felt that a lot of the history that I was looking at was the product of social forces, and people mm. might think at times they have agency, but clearly they didn't have. Yeah, that. I think I think of coercion in, in, in both senses. That the, the, there's one is a more literalised version of the mm. other. The state violence is about you know, not really having the knowledge to go to a certain place, be able to travel. Uh, I suppose yeah, negative and positive liberty we're talking about here, aren't we? But uh, yeah, I think coercion for me covers both sides.